Formula One used to have so many cars trying to make it onto the grid for a Grand Prix that it had to come up with a system that sent the worst of them home before Friday practice had even begun. On this episode of Bring Back V10s, brought to you by The Race, we're looking back at Formula One's colourful pre-qualifying era from 1989 to 1992. We'll explain why it happened and tell some of the more bizarre stories from that period and look at the wider reasons behind a period when F1 was very different to how it is today. We're only a couple of weeks away from our series finale where we'll be answering your questions on anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005. So make sure you get your questions into at We Are The Race on social media using the hashtag BringBackV10s. We've had a lot of questions in already, but we're going to do whatever we can to get through all of them very, very soon. I'm Glenn Freeman and joining me for this look back at a weird and wonderful time in the history of Formula One backmarkers are Matt Beer and inevitably Ed Straw. So Matt, before Ed hoovers up an entire episode's worth of memories in his first answer, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you when you think of pre-qualifying in F1? Uh, discovering that there could be a Formula One team as useless as life was. <laughs> I, I, I came across pre-qualifying. I, I got into F1 properly in the early 90s, just after this had finished, and then bought every second-hand book on the subject in the world. And learning that the life W12 even happened a mere two years earlier was, was quite shocking for me in my teens. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of that in this episode. Those kind of, how did this actually happen? How did these teams turn up at Grand Prix and expect, or, or sometimes even make it onto the grid? So, Ed... Um, Try and keep it short, which is uh, probably the biggest challenge you've ever had, as I know we're we're firmly in edge draw territory here, F1 backmarkers and some of the worst F1 backmarkers as well. So if you can briefly sum up this period and what it means to you. Well, pre-qualifying, it's wonderful because it's a microcosm of F1 in that era. You've got heroic failures, these improbable feats of driving, embarrassing shambles, comedy catastrophe, spectacularly misguided projects, some of the worst Grand Prix cars ever made, controversy, just so many stories didn't get the airtime uh, they deserved. And it was also just this most brutal manifestation of F1 at its most intense, usually for those who are the least well-equipped to actually take part in it. So what's not to like about it? Yeah, it's incredible. And a lot of those stories are going to get the airtime they deserve uh, today, basically 30 years on. Um, so, yeah, if, if you like F1 backmarkers and rubbish F1 teams, this episode is definitely for you. So during this era, uh, on early on a Friday morning on Grand Prix weekends, we had pre-qualifying. And at times, as many as nine drivers were eliminated from the event before 10 a.m. on a Friday. And that's when the others would come in and get to work on a real race weekend with free practice. So this was a crazy time for F1. We peaked at 39 full-time entries for the first season of formalized pre-qualifying, which was 1989, which fits nicely with our 1989 to 2005 bring back V10's bracket. This was a time when we had a lot of cars trying to make the grid because we had a lot of ambitious team owners still trying to make it in Grand Prix racing and believing that they could on quite small resources. The majority of them failed, as we'll come to quite shortly. And But we did end up with some good drivers in particular, having to try and get terrible cars onto the grid. And you could say, well, you could say, we will say, that this period had a big impact on shaping what, we could call the more closed shop F1 that followed and it still exists today. Before 89, when we had a proper pre-qualifying session, uh, we had a little bit of it in 1988, but you could actually trace pre-qualifying back to the 1965 South African Grand Prix, 
which is way before our time. So we won't be doing that just yet. But in 88, we had 31 cars entered and there was a group that were considered the pre-qualifiers and the slowest of those from free practice on a Friday morning would be eliminated on the spot. So Ed, you could consider that 88 was kind of the, the prototype and the beginning of what became the pre-qualifying era we're about to focus on because we had the same unfortunate group of cars were at risk on every weekend and were trying to get through during the first practice session. Yeah, there, there was five of them that had to, had to pre-qualify that season in, in FP1. Uh, the new Real team, Alonso de Cesares, a couple of Euro bronze, Stefano Modena and Oscar Larari, Gabriele Tarquini, who we're probably going to talk about quite a lot as this podcast goes on in the in a Sol Colonia, Alex Caffey uh, for Scuderia Italia. And you just had this great story at the start of the season because Formula One was tightening up its organisation and, and you couldn't just not turn up for races. So Scuderia Italia had to go to the, the first race in Rio in some form, it's Delara chassis wasn't ready. So Caffey was driving around in, a, in an F3000 Delara, uh, unsurprisingly nine seconds off the fastest of the pre-qualifiers. And so uh, so he went home. But once they got their proper car, it was normally Tocchini or uh, or Larari in the Erebrun who, uh, who missed out on the cup. But this is kind of where they started to formulate the idea for a proper standalone pre-qualifying session. And during the season, they start to discuss uh, the whole idea of, of making it into, into what it becomes. Yeah, so pre-qualifying wasn't brand new when it came to 1989. And it was part of a raft of rule changes, which came in because, you know, there was a growing realisation that the number of cars entered into each Grand Prix was spiralling out of control. And that there was, you know, there were fears at one point that we'd have as many as 40 cars trying to get onto a 26 car grid um, with teams such as Onyx, First Racing and Atmos expected to join for 1989. So when the formalised pre-qualifying plan for 1989 was announced the previous summer, it originally called for a completely separate event to be held at a different circuit a week or more before the race, which if you can think of bad things to do for teams that have no money and hardly any people, Sending them somewhere else the week before the race they're trying to get into would definitely be high on that list. But this was because a regulation had come in for 1989 that prohibited a circuit hosting an international event in the 50 days before a Grand Prix or any event at all in the two weeks before. So this was a massively controversial talking point at the time. And Lamberto Leone, a former Grand Prix driver who ran first racing, suggested that there were nefarious motives behind this. And he said... It's terrible for a new team and very expensive. If we were to make the same decision again now, then perhaps we wouldn't do it. I think FISA and FOCA, which are the governing bodies at the time, are pushing to try and prevent new teams from entering, which is kind of where I think F1's got to today. But this was a time when Formula One started to realise as the professionalism increased at the front of the grid, it needed to do something about the back of the grid. So rules were brought in demanding that every team had to run two cars. And uh, the wording was that a most careful selection of the candidates shall be operated in order to ensure that the competing teams meet all the standards required by the FIA. Classic FIA speak there, if ever I've seen it. So, Matt, why were there so many teams, uh, you know, chances almost, 
trying to get into F1 at this period. How did we end up in a situation where, you know, the FIA was genuinely afraid of more than 40 cars trying to turn up for a race weekend? It, it does seem bizarre in retrospect that the most dominant F1 season ever in 1988 was followed by a load of new people going, yeah, we could get the hang of that. That looks that looks fairly straightforward after McLaren's just won 15 out of 16 races. Um, but it is actually, when you look back into this, it's quite hard to actually trace the uh, the origins of that it wasn't like there was a rule change that particularly helped but then the end of the turbo era made it a bit more democratic on the engine front you could go and buy a Cosworth um you go and buy a Judd um Cosworth was even doing some quite decent deals for upgrading the previous year's engines as well at a relatively cost effective um price so for teams that had been successful in Formula 3 or Formula 3000 F1 looked a bit more achievable budget-wise, even if a team at the front like McLaren looked so far out of reach. Um, the, the world wasn't in a bad place financially, relatively. It was, it was a, a, a non-recession era before things went downhill at the start of the 1990s. And like you've touched on, F1 was getting more organised at the time as well, and the promotion of it was getting better uh, alongside that. that you know, it was uh, expanding more in TV terms as well. Uh, satellite TV was kicking off, I think it was on Eurosport at the time as well. So there were a few things that were making F1 as a business to be in look more attractive at the same time that uh, the engines were getting a bit more accessible, um, even if at the front of the grid actually getting to a, a race-winning status looked harder than ever. I think that the, the thing Matt touches on there with the, with the turbo rule change, there was this feeling at the time that this this new rules for 1989 would transform, tra- transform Formula One and make it much more easy for people to compete, etc. Where have we heard that before? That that's always what happens when there's uh, when there's big uh, rule changes designed to make things a bit more e- equal. So not only did it encourage people to come in, not just in 89, but in the few years before, but also perhaps those who were already there to hang on longer than perhaps was sensible in the hope of uh, of getting into this uh, this bold new era but of course it, it never never quite worked out like that but it was just that combination of stars aligning and and everybody just wanted a piece of the action ultimately because people saw people making money this was the point where Bernie Eccleston was helping people like Frank Williams and Ron Dennis who've been around for a while rake it in and they thought oh we could do that and of course a lot of them couldn't no as, as we would go on to find out so common sense prevailed and we didn't do the uh the separate event at a different circuit um Although imagine that. Imagine them having their own standalone event somewhere. That would be absolute heaven for Ed, wouldn't it? I'd have paid for tickets. Yeah, you'd have been the only one. So uh, they, they end up deciding that the only way they can do this is to give the pre-qualifiers their own one-hour session first thing on a Friday morning. So from 8 till 9 a.m. before free practice, uh, these, these pre-qualifiers have to go out. And at that point, uh, four would go through, and that's just to become part of 30 cars trying to get onto the 26 slots on the grid. So they were still at risk of not making the rest of the weekend. So at the start of 89, um, first didn't make it with a car that would have or was designed by Ricardo Davina, who very recently passed away. Um, and the Atmos project didn't happen. And then Philippe Streff had a horrendous accident in testing at Rio, which left him paralysed. So we had 38 cars at the season opening Brazilian Grand Prix and then that was up to 39 when Tarquini took over Streff's AGS for the second round at Imola. The 13 best teams from 1988 avoided pre-qualifying, although Scuderia Italia, AGS, Colonia and Real expanded from one to two cars and their new entries were in pre-qualifying. And they were joined by two car entries from Acela, Onyx, Zaxpeed and the returning Brabham team and then a lone Eurobrun of Gregor Foytek. 
So there were 13 drivers gunning for those four slots. And as I say, you could get through and still be one of the four drivers that would then miss out in the proper qualifying. Philippe uh, Alliot, a driver who ended up in these sessions later in 1989 when LaRousse got bumped down because um, the pre-qualifying teams were, were reassessed halfway through the year. And he gave a quote at the time saying, no one can possibly realise what an unbelievable experience it is having to pre-qualify with the intensity and the tension. You can be sure of absolutely nothing. Ed, you and Matt have both done a lot of research going back over uh, this time in F1 and, and you know the interviews that the people who were involved gave. And I think one thing that really comes across is just how stressful it was and... You know, do you have some sympathy for what these guys were being put through? Oh, definitely. It was hugely stressful. You didn't have the chance to ease your way in. You had to go straight into this competitive sudden death situation. You'd be on a, a track that was that was not very clean often. Sometimes on some of the temporary tracks, it was in terrible condition. And at the start of the session, it would be really, really slow. So at the same time as trying to get your eye in and trying to dial your car in, you've got to try and hold back a bit. So you've still got fresh rubber for when the when the circuit's at its quickest. These teams are normally parked somewhere not particularly well equipped because one of the reasons they had to have pre-qualifying was there wasn't enough garage space for everyone, let alone being able to run all the cars on track at the same time. So you weren't in ideal circumstances and you were just sort of battling away, just trying to get a lap time. And then half the time, because these teams were so small and and struggling, you'd have failures and that kind of thing. You could have someone blocking you on a, on a good lap. You get you might break down and try to get back for the T car, but you know how do you get back to the uh, back to the pits in time? So there was just so little time to to adapt to these things. And then of course the madness kind of continued because even if you pre qualified, very often you then have to move your whole team into a garage, sometimes into a garage with another team doing exactly the same thing at the same time, which is a recipe for chaos. And, and there's stories of in this period, people would get through pre-qualifying and they'd miss a huge chunk of the first practice session because they just didn't have time to move, get set up and be ready for the next practice session. And of course, if you miss the first practice session in those days, you then go into the first qualifying session in the afternoon where you're trying to put a time on the board to have a chance of getting into the race so from all angles it's just this this horrible situation and if things go wrong even if you're quick enough you can't set the time and then you're out and you're done and that that's the end of your weekend and the other thing as well is it, it wasn't necessarily the six or so slowest teams that were in pre-qualifying because the the pre-qualifying group was based on the previous season's results in the first half of the year this was a whole new set of cars in most cases so quite often there were long streaks where you had one team dominating pre-qualifying with a car that really should have been allowed on pure merit to go straight onto the grid um, and then cars that wouldn't pre-qualify would actually their pre-qualifying times on this Friday morning session would be quick enough would be quicker than people would actually produce on Saturday afternoon in the end so it wasn't necessarily democratic and they were doing it on a filthy track. Um, There's one uh, Canadian Grand Prix in 1989. They'd actually washed part of the track just before pre-qualifying. So they had to use wet tires, even though most of the track was dry because part of it was um, saturated where they cleaned it. So, yeah, it, it was brutal and it wasn't entirely meritocratic either, but it um, it was fun to look back on. 
So you basically have one of three scenarios as a driver. Either you're in a quick car and you've got to hope it doesn't it doesn't break. You're in a terrible car that's going to fall apart and go really slowly. Or you're in a car that's right on the cusp and you've got to turn in the lap of your life even to have the chance to qualify for the race. So there's lots and lots of ways to lose in pre-qualifying. No ways to really win. Yeah, the injustice of it all. Now, uh, we are going to do this episode slightly differently because as you know, if you've been listening to everything we've done so far and if you haven't, why are you only joining us now? You've got seven episodes to catch up on. We normally go through a story chronologically, but uh, we're going to bounce around a little bit all over the place here because as much as Ed would love to go through every single pre-qualifying session and analyse them all in great depth, uh, there just isn't the time. So Matt and Ed are going to pick out some of their favourite stories from this time. And we'll start in 1989 with a, a combination, as Matt hinted there, there were drivers and teams that probably had no business being in this this session for the for the backmarkers and one of those in 89 was Brabham which had uh, Martin Brundle and Stefano Modena as its driver lineup you know, this was a very credible F1 team but Ed it ended up in pre-qualifying in 89 because it had a slightly quirky existence in the latter part of the 80s hadn't it and it, and it paid the price actually for for not being on the grid at all in 88. Yeah, it had this quite quick decline as Bernie Eccleston, of course, who owned it, was becoming less and less interested in his team, which, of course, had won championships in 81 and 83 with Nelson Piquet, and he was focusing much more on running the whole show, and then he basically pulled the team out in 1988 and was trying to sell it. There was this long saga about who was going to buy it. There was talk about Alfa Romeo getting it. It was eventually sold to a Swiss businessman, uh, Joachim Luthi, uh, I think via Walter Brunn, who was uh, was involved in the Eurobrun team that was also in pre-qualifying. So this was a reactivation of a team under new ownership. Hence, it was it was pretty capable. It was a, a ready-to-go team despite the year out. And it, it just had, a, it had one of those situations where it had a quick car and was often the quickest car in pre-qualifying. But still, they suffered many of the pitfalls that you face in, in pre-qualifying. Yeah, there, there were two races where Martin Brundle, who was generally the pre-qualifying pace setter, didn't even get onto the grid. And but those ironically followed um, Brabham's best race of the season in Monaco. Um, that that particular Monaco story is one of the it really sums up pre-qualifying best. So there was confusion about how many cars would even go through pre-qualifying on on that weekend because it was the race that followed Gerhard Berger's terrible accident at Imola. So Ferrari only had one car entered. Um, in theory, that you know, the pre-qualifying contenders thought, okay, that means five spaces on the grid for us rather than four, as that was the rule that had been applied in Brazil when um, AGS only had one car because of Streff's accident. Um, so they thought they were fighting for five places, not four. And then it turned out as the weekend went on that um, the ruling was going to be, no, it was still just four places. They were going to do just 29 cars in qualifying. So um, Brundle had quite a tough pre-qualifying, was fourth fastest by the skin of his teeth, just 0.021 seconds over Pierre Carlo Ginzani's Ozella. Um, at the time, didn't think that necessarily mattered because both him and Ginzali were going to make it to qualifying. And then Ginzali was told, no, you're actually not going through. We're enforcing the rules differently this weekend to how we did it two months ago. Um, but then Brundle and his teammate Stefano Modena showed what the Brabham could do when they got into qualifying. Uh, Brundle was fourth on the grid, uh, Modena was eighth. Um, they both uh, Modena ended up on the podium, but Brundle you know, really should have been. He drove a, an outstanding race. He was hassling Nigel Mansell's Ferrari for the first half of it. Um, a battery problem um, made he had to have a pit stop for a complete battery change. Rejoined in tenth, and actually was pulling off excellent overtaking moves around Monaco to get back to sixth. So. That was the calibre of um, of team and driver in pre-qualifying, um, capable of doing that sort of race in Monaco. And then he failed to qualify for two of the next races. Um, sorry, failed to pre-qualify for two of the next races uh, in Canada. This 
session that started with the track being soaked, then got disrupted by Gregor Foytek having a massive crash. Um, Brendel had car problems at the start, and thought he was going to be okay, but then got knocked out by a great lap from Alex Caffey. And then in the next race in France, he um, he managed to break his clutch master cylinder with a really vicious trip over a curb when running wide at Paul Ricard. And that was enough to mean he didn't partake in the rest of the weekend at all. And this was a car that had been um, fighting for a Monaco podium about a month earlier. Back when Paul Ricard actually had curbs that the cars would notice <laughs> if you drove over them and run off areas. Uh, so that's, that's the example of a good team that was in pre-qualifying. Let's move on to uh, a team in some ways just as memorable as Brabham, but for all the wrong reasons, because pre-qualifying was the stage uh, for which the Life team was able to get on track on a Grand Prix weekend. Hopeless 1990 entry. Now, before I throw this one over to you guys, um, Ed, you, uh, you've looked through how how the team fared in each of its sessions that year. And to do this justice, I've got to read them all out. So this, you know, we won't do too much of this, but we've got to do it for life. So at Phoenix, uh, it did four and a half laps. Uh, the black box failed. It didn't have a replacement. Uh, into Lagos, the car failed on the outlap. A connecting rod in the W12 engine went. Uh, didn't complete a lap at Imola. An oil pump belt failure damaged the engine having got all the way up to third gear. Uh, in Monaco, it did eight laps, and then the engine went on... I mean, you've written here, quick lap. That's generous, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Canada, lots of electrical problems. Car stopped on track after seven laps. Mexico, engine failed on outlap. France, fuel pump failure on outlap. Silverstone, eight laps, engine failed. Germany, uh, five laps. Then they tried to make a suspension tweak that was not completed in time. <laughs> Uh, Hungary, five laps, engine failed. Belgium uh, ran only in the last 10 minutes. And I mean, on the notes, I'm going to read it out. It says tugged. And if we get through the rest of this episode without using that phrase again, we all deserve a medal. Um, Italy, two laps, engine failure. Portugal switched to the Judd engine, only got it started at the end of pre-qualifying. And then the engine cover fell apart when it got on track. Spain, two laps completed, engine failed. Uh, Ed, where would you like to go with this one? Well, well life is not only the, the comfortably the most the most fun, the, the the gold standard of dreadful F1 teams, but it it is symptomatic of this era because you've got all the ingredients. You've got you've got an owner who thinks he's going to be able to make a load of money out of it. Initially, he wanted to be an engine supplier only, and then decided, well, let's start this team. Then, seeing as they couldn't convince any of the uh, teams to take this Life W12 engine, which had been designed by Franco Rocchi, who was a uh, Ferrari uh, engine guy, so uh, so not without uh, a track record. But it was just completely unprepared. They they got this first racing uh, uh, design that, as we mentioned, was Ricardo uh, De Vere, the late Ricardo De Vere. I mean, he he disowned it by this time because he'd done the initial designs for the first car. But as it gradually moved through its incarnation as as the first car, which did get built, and then the life, it was it was not what he designed. It wasn't a well put together car by any stretch of the imagination. And then you've got all these just examples of incompetence. They got to Phoenix and they had to borrow a tire pressure gauge off Eurobrun. Uh, Gary Brabham, who was uh, kind of a bit of a rising a rising star at the time, walked away after two races. His manager complained about the lack of professionalism. Eventually, they got Bruno Giacomelli in, basically because he was he was somebody who'd been out of Formula 1 for a long time. Proper driver, Bruno Giacomelli, but he was desperate to get back in. And they offered him uh, actual money. They never paid him, but they, uh, as, as far as I understand, but, but they did offer him money. And it just never came together. And 
that it was just this constant optimism that things would be sorted out. And yeah, the, the W12 engine was a problem, but they switched to the Judd, which, you know, it, it they could put it in the car and should have been able to run it, but they couldn't even do that successfully. So you've got all the ingredients. They couldn't run it. They didn't have the people. Uh, the technical director left really early on, uh, Franco Rocchi, and, and just everything was uh, was an absolute, <laughs> absolute mess. And, and that's why people just remember this because if you look at the lap times they never set a, they never set a lap even vaguely close to to looking like it could get on the grid you know Pierre Carlo uh, Bruno Giacomelli could have done the greatest lap in grand prix history and he would have been nowhere near making the cutoff so everything was just just hilarious and apparently he made a really dreadful noise as well which is uh, when it was working so uh, so it ticks all the boxes for for comedy failure it just sounds fictional, doesn't it? Looking now, the fact the team was called Life, which is a ludicrous name to start with. The, the engine was a shape, was a configuration no one, no one else would ever go near. Um, Jack O'Malley having been out for seven years before that, and you know, like you say, Ed, he was a really competent driver. I thought what he did at Alfa Romeo in the early eighties was great, but this is this is an awfully long time on. I was trying to think of what a modern equivalent would be yesterday, and I, and I kind of came up with it would be like a, having a team called Thoughts um, getting Heike Kovalainen out of F1 retirement with a hexagon-shaped engine um, run by people you've never heard of. And that was a, that's as, as realistic as this project seemed at the time. The only person who comes out the whole thing with any credibility is Bernd Schneider, who was offered the drive after Brabham left and, and turned it down, basically saying, I'm, I'm not going anywhere near that one. Well, he was fresh out of Zaxby's as well, which we'll touch on later. So he'd already had one. He'd obviously had a particularly miserable experience in 89 and then saw that and thought, gosh, as a team doing this even more incompetently than my previous employer did, I'm not going near that. Yeah, credit to Bernd Schneider for making a good decision on that one. So, Matt, uh, we're going to keep Ed away from the floor for a moment and throw this one over to you. We've gone from talking about uh, some of the worst things to do with pre-qualifying. Let's have a, let's have a little stats dive shall we? Because, uh, you know, there were some star drivers during pre-qualifying. I know you you guys have crunched the numbers. So who do we want to give a shout out to? Who were the either the maybe the best drivers in pre-qualifying or just the ones who kept turning up? <laughs> uh, I, I think Bertrand Gasho deserves praise for going through a full 41 pre-qualifying sessions. Wow which is yeah, impressive across four different teams, uh, Onyx, Colony, Jordan and Venturi, making it through 25 times. Um, had contentious, unusual splits with two of those teams as well, which is a, a nice little sort of side stat to add, add to that. Um, obviously, you, you've got some some drivers who have uh, 100% records of getting through pre-qualifying. Um, Stefano Modena um, with Brabham in the, fir- in the first set of sessions. Uh, it's a really illustrious set of drivers did go through that. We mentioned Brundle and Modena, uh, obviously. Michele Alboreto ended up in pre-qualifying only a year after um, racing for Ferrari. Um, having split with Tyrrell, um, he ended up in the Lola LaRousse project and then reappeared in pre-qualifying with footwork a little bit later in his career. Um, Gabriele Tarquini, I'd shout to as a, as a pre-qualifying hero. He he did some really gallant work with an, with an AGS that was never going to... Um, was the te- that team by that time was in no shape to be in Grand Prix racing, really. He only made it into, on, into the real qualifying session 14 times out of his 33 pre-qualifying appearances, but... Within a few years of that, he was an absolute hero in Super Touring. This, um, so it does show the calibre of driver who was getting stuck in those Friday morning sessions. Um, but I think my ultimate pre-qualifying hero would be Roberto Moreno. Um, his career tra- trajectory was absolutely bonkers by this point anyway, in that he'd already 
made one Grand Prix attempt in 1982 with Lotus when he was massively unprepared, subbing for an injured Nigel Mansell. Didn't qualify on that occasion. Went back to the to the single-seater ladder. Was Formula 2 runner-up. Um, had a very brief IndyCar career first time around in the mid-80s and impressed in that. Still had no money. Came back to Europe. Eventually ended up winning Formula 3000 in 1988. Was testing for Ferrari at the same time, um, doing most of the donkey work on their semi-automatic gearbox. But then he spends most of his actual Grand Prix career at that period just trying to get Coloni's Eurobruns and uh, later on an Andrea Moda um, onto the grid uh, with, with limited success. He only makes it three pre-qualifying eight times in 30 attempts. Um, but then 1990 just showed what a quality driver he really was. You know, with Eurobrun eventually fell apart um, a few weeks before he got a call up to Benetton after Alessandro Nanini's terrible helicopter crash. And this driver, who could barely get uh, beyond Friday morning in the in the completely hopeless Eurobrun, finished second in the Japanese Grand Prix in his first start with Benetton. So, as a as a kind of ultimate measure of uh, the sort of driver who was stuck in these sessions and uh, and a real hero for getting the cars into qualifying that he did, I'm going to give a a nod to Moreno as the the pre qualifying star of the era. Putting that Eurobrun. 16th on the grid for the United States Grand Prix in 1990 was preposterous, just as his Monaco Andrea Moda performance was. I think I think Gabriele Tarquini also deserves a little bit of a mention. I here. knew that was coming. Well, no, I I I think if I was if I was running a, a 1989 Formula One team and I wanted the best two drivers for qualifying, Moreno would be my first driver, and I'd have Gabriele Tarquini as my second one. Although he was the driver who pre who failed to pre qualify uh, more than any other driver, of course, he just had. A, a horrendous sequence of uh, cars in Formula One, a seller, Coloni. He was meant to race the first, but of course it didn't turn up in 89. Got that AGS seat, did score a point with the uh, with the AGS, carried on with the AGS for 80, 89 and 91. So a huge amount of time in, in struggling cars for, for him. But both, you know, first-rate drivers. If you look at what they've done elsewhere, obviously Matt touched on Moreno. We saw how well Tarquini did in, in touring cars. You know, a, a fantastic driver, still going strong uh, to this day. So... It underlines the fact there were actually some seriously good drivers turning up in 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 terrible cars in pre-qualifying. So, although there's the occasional no hoper, most of them are actually pretty serious and could have done a, a formidable job in a, in a proper car. Well, it's got to be said, hasn't it? In any era of F1, really, particularly modern F1, there's always been more capable drivers than there have been seats, and that's the same today. You know, if we end up with uh, you know 40 cars trying to get onto the grid today, we would find 40 decent drivers, or maybe 30 two decent drivers and some pay drivers to fill them. It's just that back then, these guys were good, but they were in terrible cars and it didn't always do them justice. And poor old Moreno didn't even last a year at Benetton before he got booted out for a German chap called Schumacher. Let's move on to another team we want to talk about. Uh, and this is one that I look back on very fondly, Onyx. I think they were cool-looking cars, weren't around for very long, but had some very memorable moments and good results during their short existence. But in fairness, Ed, when they first appeared at the start of 89, they didn't look anything special at all. Yeah, they they struggled for the simple reason that they were so underprepared. It, they tried to set it up. Uh, this was Mike Earl, of course, who'd, who'd run Onyx uh, in, in single-seater racing. You know, very serious person, ran a, ran a very proper team. They had Alan Jenkins in as designer, but they, they just weren't ready for the first race in uh, in 89. They got this influx of money. Bertrand Gachot, the driver, had brought in this uh, Monitron money from, uh, from Jean-Pierre Van Rossum, who's one of the... Uh, colourful character sponsors from this uh, from this era. So I think a lot of people 
kind of shrugged them off and said, oh, they're, they're not going to be very good because they, they just didn't have the car ready to run in Rio, despite the fact they took it to a kart track to run it around and try and get it to work. But, you know, they had they had failures and bits falling off. And people were looking at it and thinking, oh, well, you've bitten off more than you can chew here because the standard thing is you'd normally have undercooked, simple cars. But the Onyx, actually, Jenkins's car, was, was a very well-designed, quite ambitious little car. But then as the season went on, after the first three races where it didn't pre-qualify, suddenly the car started finding finding this pace. And uh, by the end of the first half of the season, actually the Onyx was be- becoming the quickest car in, in pre-qualifying, quicker even than the, the Brabham. Stephanie Hansen got fifth in the French Grand Prix on Merrick. Gachot probably could have been sixth place there, but had a, a battery problem and had the lost time in the pits. And then you have this sensational performance in the, the Portuguese Grand Prix at, uh, at Estoril. Johansson was one of only two drivers ever to have finished on the podium after pre-qualifying in, in this era. They had a, a, a special qualifying engine, which they they upgraded the oil system, I think it was. Decided to do a no-stop strategy. And just Johansson drove a, a really good race, benefited from obviously Senna and Mansell came together in that race. Petrese uh, was ahead, I think, and retired, and that's what promoted Johansson to, to third. But they got this incredible third place. The thing that's a real shame about Onyx is this was a very proper team that did a great job with huge potential. You know, people look at it thinking this could be good, but of course, as often happened, the money started to falling up, started to fall apart. It ended up with Van Rossum owning all of the team at the end of the season. They had a falling out with Gasho, so Gasho got sacked and JJ Leto was was brought in. Uh, tried to do this Porsche engine deal, the one that Footwork eventually got, which on paper sounded great, but obviously that that Porsche engine was uh, was uh, was not a great great one. But gradually the team fell apart. It was sold to a, a Swiss former racer, Peter Monteverdi. But by then, Mike Earl had gone and Jenkins sort of hung on trying to make the best of it. But it was such a shame because you did have something that could have grown into something. It could have done what Jordan did, I guess, in terms of coming in, new team, doing a credible job. But it just shows how many pitfalls there are. That Even if you do a good job with your team, run it properly, do a car properly, you can still get tripped up by the fact that just, there just isn't the money there, even even if you merit it. But that third place in Esther, that that stands in history as just one of the most fantastic performances. I think one of my lasting memories of Onyx is when Nigel Mansell used uh, Senna getting held up by Johansson's Onyx in Hungary to complete that quite memorable three abreast pass. And I think afterwards Mansell said that uh, Senna had got stuck behind the Moneytron. I always enjoyed Mansell calling it the Moneytron rather than the Onyx. But um, Matt, we had a brief mention of Zach Speed earlier with Bernd Schneider. This is a team with a serious motorsport pedigree before and after its time in Formula One, but it was struggling to find its feet in F1 in the late 1980s. So this boom in other backmarker teams for it to have to fight to get onto the grid, it couldn't have come at a worse time for Zach Speed, could it? Um no, a, a big part of Zaxby's struggle in the turbo era had been build, trying to build its own engine. So for 1989, it uh, it stops that and uh, got in a, a new one instead. But it went for Yamaha, which was a terribly bad decision because in this period in particular, Yamaha was uh, was terrible in Formula One. So it ended up um, just having countless failures. There, there was a story that uh, the re- they were timing the record for how little time an engine would last between switching on and blowing up. And at one stage, it was four seconds uh, on one particular unit. Um, that created the statistic of Aguri Suzuki becoming the only driver ever to have a whole season of failing to pre-qualify. Um, he was in the session every every race in 1989, never got out of it. His teammate, uh, Bern Schneider, who, as we know from touring car racing, was an absolutely superb driver. He did manage to get the Zach Speed onto the grid uh, twice, um, first of all in the Brazilian Grand Prix, and then after that, it was another um, 
uh, seven months till he managed to get through pre-qualifying onto the grid again at the, at the Japanese Grand Prix, Yamaha's home race, sign of optimism at last, and the engine blows on lap one. I remember talking to him about that once. I think he can. I interviewed him to do his uh, race of my life for Autosport, and I think he considered putting that qualifying lap down as the drive of his life. And then he told me about the heartache of it, of it breaking down beforehand. Um, I don't think Bernd Schneider's F1 career did justice to how good he was. Now, we've got this far into an episode talking about F1 backmarkers, and we haven't mentioned the backmarker that was an ever-present from 89 to 2005, and that's Minardi. Everybody loves Minardi, but we haven't mentioned them so far, Matt, because they never actually ended up in pre-qualifying, although they did come very close, didn't they? Yeah, it's it's a brilliant pre-qualifying stat that Minardi never had to go through it once. Um, it had been a, a fairly terrible team in the mid-1980s when it started, but it did score its first point in 1988, and that was enough to mean it didn't have to go through pre-qualifying in 89. But the first half of the season was fairly terrible, reliability-wise in particular. It, it wasn't slow at that point. Pierre-Luigi Martini was generally qualifying just outside the top 10. Um, it's but a good it got, car. Yeah, as as they'd prove um, later in the season, uh, Estoril, he even ended up leading. Um, at the end of the season, his qualifying record was, I think, 5-4-3 in the last three Grand Prix of the season, and then he qualified second for Phoenix in 1990 opener. So Minardi was actually finding its feet and producing a decent little car at this point. Um, but come Silverstone, with the likes of um, Brabham having had some good races, Riel um, moved up the order very impressively uh, through a bit of luck in Phoenix. Um, some of the pre-qualifying teams were looking really good for escaping, and Minardi was in real trouble. Um, but again, Martini qualified just outside the top 10, and this time the race went smoothly. Um, he managed to get through to fifth. Now, that's the kind of result he could have got several other times earlier in that season had the car held together. Um, but the really impressive thing was that his teammate, Luis Perez-Sala, who was basically rubbish, um, managed to pull off a sixth place under heavy pressure from, I think, Olivier Griard, another um, classic backmarker of the era. So Bernardi out of sort of out of nowhere with its one excellent driver. I think Martini was excellent. I think that's fair. Excellent for a, an underdog um, having some luck. And it's rubbish second driver performing like a competent Grand Prix racer for the first time, perhaps only time in his F1 career. It did perhaps show that when uh, the pre-qualifying did put teams under pressure like that, uh, I, um, it was a, it was Onyx that uh, was consigned to staying in pre-qualifying as a result of Minardi getting this points finish. And the two the two teams were parked together in the paddock that weekend. Um, Onyx had some relatively okay cash behind it at that time, so had quite a swanky setup. And Minardi had everything you'd expect from, as little as you'd expect from, from Minardi. Um, and Salah hanging on under pressure to get that sixth place at the end made all the difference. And the, the moods in the, in the two very different motorhomes were... Uh, were opposite, according to reports from the time. Yeah, so that that's where we'll leave Minardi because they they never fell they never fell into the uh, the pit of uh, of pre qualifying. Um, before we move on to some more great subjects, obviously these these ramshackle operations quite often had shambolic reasons for not making the cut. Um, so I'm going to ask you for your favourites, and we'll start with you, Ed. What, what, which ones come to mind for you? And uh, you can't list twenty. Yeah, I think my one of my favourite ones was probably uh, Bertrand Gasho, uh, one of those who was in pre-qualifying a hell of a lot. Just that they'd rushed to get the uh, to get the Colony ready for 1990, 
and he just uh, they'd done a little shakedown ahead of the ahead of the United States Grand Prix, and the gear linkage broke the second he was uh, out of the pit lane. And those are the ones I like most. Just when you go to this Herculean effort in a misguided attempt to to qualify for a race, and then just something falls apart instantaneously. It's uh, it's cruel, but uh, sort of funny. Yeah, there's there's so many tales of something breaking on the very first lap out of the pits, wings falling off, wheels falling off, that sort of thing. I think my uh, my favourite for sheer hopelessness, the, the, the few tales of drivers effectively making their, their debut in an F1 car in pre-qualifying, and Naoki Hattori did that at Suzuka in 1991 with Coloni, was sent straight out having not driven the car before, spun off after four laps and uh, failed to pre-qualify a mere 18.8 seconds off the pace. Um but for sheer uh, ludicrous misfortune, the actually quite good Eric van der Poel um, at Phoenix in 1991 with the Moderna team, which was a sort of Lamborghini operation, um, he ended up eight seconds off the pre-qualifying pace through little fault of his own. His engine had blown in his own car before he could do a proper lap. He, he ran back um, in the Arizona heat for the spare and then wasn't allowed to come out of uh, come out of the, get the pit lane because he was judged to have been too tall for the cockpit. His head was sticking out too far, and the officials felt that was unsafe. The team's spare tub simply wasn't big enough for a driver of uh, van der Poel's height, and that was the first time it had really cropped up. I'm sure that wouldn't have been the only case of an unsafe car being allowed out onto the track in a pre-qualifying session. Now, you mentioned there that uh, the Moderna team was, you know, in some ways you could consider it a Lamborghini works operation, and... There's actually another tail end of what we could consider a works team taking part in pre-qualifying, which seems ludicrous. But pick up the story for us with Coloni and Subaru. Yeah, well, Enzo Coloni's team are coming to Formula One in 87. Definitely on the record as enticed by the fact turbos were going to be banned. Coloni was a pretty handy junior single-seater team. They got some reasonable results in F3000 year before they had success in F3 winning the Italian Championship with Capelli. And then Subaru decided they wanted to come into Formula One. So they bought a, actually bought a control of the team in uh, for 1990 they had uh, Matori Moderni who had supplied Minardi with engines in the past to, to work on a Subaru flat 12 engine but it it was just a, a disastrous project the car was hugely overweight for something like 140 kilos it, it drank oil by the by the gallon pretty much so it was just a, a, a terrible unwieldy car 35 kilos of oil I've been told by someone who's spoken to Paolo Coloni about this so that's 35 of your 140 kilos just in just in oil. Yeah, just I mean that just shows how far off being sensible the the <laughs> the, the whole thing was and and it, inevitably the Colony in 1990 despite having a, a good driver in Gasho never got near uh, qualifying had all sorts of problems you know as I mentioned at Phoenix had a gear linkage breaking and a gear change problem into Lagos broken oil seat at Monaco the engine failed instantly in France Silverstone was only running running on 10 cylinders and then Subaru well Subaru initially wanted to get rid of Enzo Colony so did then they decided they wanted to get rid of the team and sold it back to him and they switched to uh, uh, a Ford uh, a Ford engine and were a bit better after that but yeah, the, the whole thing was just uh, a real mess. And, of course, and Coloni lumbered on for another year. They almost got Andrea de Cesaris, actually, for 91. But, yeah, Coloni, they were basically in pre-qualifying throughout this whole spell. You know, it, it never had, had any real uh, uh, resource behind them and just really, really uh, struggled. But, again, one of those charismatic teams. And, and Coloni, you know, it's it's a it's a very familiar racing team name. So, of course, the Colony name continued in single-seater racing for a very, very, uh, very long time after that. Yeah, and probably repaired some of the damage to the name uh, in terms of reputation because, yeah, they were certainly credible over the years that followed outside of F1. 
Now, Ed, we let Matt talk us through some of the stars of pre-qualifying. It only seems fitting that to go to the other end of the pre-qualifying statistics pile, we should come to you. So let's spare a moment for the the less fortunate drivers who never made it through a pre-qualifying session. Yeah, well, there are a handful who were basically considered Grand Prix drivers, but never never got beyond uh, early Friday morning. The the most unfortunate was uh, Claudio Langes, the uh, the Italian driver. You know, a driver good enough to finish on the podium in, in F3000. He failed to pre-qualify 14 times in a year. Abrun Pedro Chavez, you know, another capable driver, 13 attempts in a Coloni. Jerkin Winkelhock, uh, obviously went on to be a, a touring car superstar, you know, a very, very good driver. He had seven attempts in the AGS in 1991 and was generally pilloried by people, but, you know, he didn't have a chance in a car of that. That quality. Enrico Battaglia, a Macau Grand Prix winner, had uh, seven failed attempts to qualify in a Coloni and then was briefly supposed to be in a Andrea Moda um, before uh, before being replaced. Perry McCarthy, another Andrea Moda driver. Gary Bradman, we've mentioned before, and uh, Matt's favourite, Naoki Hattori. You know, Hattori was another driver who knew how to turn a steering wheel. So it just shows that, you get these people who are who are Grand Prix drivers, but they just did not have a chance. It would take a superhuman effort even to get close to getting through pre-qualifying, let alone hauling those uh, those cars on on the grid. Not, I've always liked these drivers because I remember having uh, years ago um, the first edition of the, the the book by Steve Small, the Grand Prix drivers, and and there was a section at the back which was just about the drivers who never qualified for a race. And I was always fascinated by some of these. A lot of them you wouldn't have heard of, and. I think that was probably the start of my fascination with uh, with those struggling at the back of uh, Grand Prix grids because there's you know there's always a a story behind this and and again all those drivers mentioned were perfectly capable of doing a perfectly effective job in a Grand Prix car and some of them could have done much much better than that so yeah what a cruel record I I wonder how it feels to have been someone who made it to F1 like Winkelhock but never had a chance you'd almost wonder if he'd rather have never made it rather than being this uh, almost embarrassing footnote. The fact that you said Winklehock was pilloried, I think, as a massive super touring fan from the mid-90s, learning that Winklehock's, uh, Winklehock's reputation in F1 was that bad, I found that quite offensive when I was uh, catching up on this era. Oh, I mean, Ed, you say that you wonder what it would feel like to get to that many Grand Prix and never take part in one. Well, you've done far more than any of these guys did. So in a way, you achieved a, that goal of becoming one of these people. You're always at F1, but I never see you qualify. Yeah, I've not, I've not qualified uh, for, a, for a, a, a single race. I did, ha- in, my, uh, in my very modest amateur fun Sunday race driving career, have a few occasions where I did have to qualify. Uh, but normally I did, uh, I, did, I, I did quite well. Although... My own contribution to hilarity in a qualifying race in the Giletta, I once started a race from well up the grid, thought, just drive around, hold fourth place, get to the main race, started in neutral, last by the first corner. So I've got my own idiotic qualifying story. Yeah, you'd have fit in very well in a, in a Coloni uh, or Eurobrun or, or, or maybe even a Life. I think they'd have all suited you. I think the one thing I wouldn't have done was fit in any of those cars, unfortunately. Now, we've mainly, uh, since since Brabham, which feels like a very long time ago now, we've mainly talked about rubbish pre-qualifying stories, but surely the best team to ever take part in pre-qualifying was Jordan, which was there for the first half of 1991 because it was a brand new entry. And the team went on to finish fifth in the Constructors' Championship that year, which is phenomenal for, firstly, considering it was brand new, and secondly, considering that it was it was part of this band of unlikely brothers that were uh, the travelling circus that had to go out and be the opening act on a Friday morning. Now, of course, the Jordan 191, a gorgeous and very competitive Formula One car, was designed by our very own Gary Anderson. And uh, Gary 
actually found pre-qualifying quite useful, even though at the first attempt, Jordan only got one of its cars through. So we had a quick word with Gary to get some insight into what it was like to take part in this session. And here's what he told us. Being a new team coming into Formula 1 in 1991, pre-qualifying was, was pretty good for us because it gives us a little bit of a chance to, to try to get on top of things before actually the real weekend started. The biggest worry for us with pre-qualifying, I suppose, was the fact that the Pirelli tyre, we were using Goodyear tyres, and the Pirelli tyres, Pirelli themselves were allowing the teams to run and they would bring them back in and they'd put them onto a sort of um, wheel balance machine and they'd clean up the surface of them. So they were able to run a, a sort of softer tyre than us. We had to wait to about the last five minutes of that one hour pre-qualifying before the track would be clean enough for the Goodyear tyre to really respond. At the beginning of the sessions, you know, in the, in the first 15 minutes of the, of the run, of the hour running, you'd probably find yourself two or three seconds off any sort of pace. You know, that would be lucky. Um, and then as the session went by you get to a point where you think, okay, you know, now's the time, put on your second set of tyres and, and stand on the gas pedal, and that would be enough. But it did, what it did do is, is give us an opportunity to sort of be a little bit ahead of the game. Although whenever whenever 9 o'clock came on a, on, a, on a Friday morning, you usually were feeling so burned out that you missed the next session or part of the next session anyway, just from the fact that you'd you know, been through the stress of, of pre-qualifying. It was tough for the drivers. But, you know, we, we had a good record. We didn't, Andrea didn't uh, get through pre-qualifying at the first race in Phoenix because a, a, a camshaft sensor on the engine fell off, basically, at the back of the, one of the camshafts. So the engine didn't know where it was. We was a bit unlucky and, and, you know, he didn't get back in time to get in the spare car and all that sort of stuff. But we pre-qualified for all the rest of the races up to the British Grand Prix and then we were out of pre-qualifying, which was a big relief. But at the end of the day, we missed that extra hour, I think, that, didn't do you any harm as long as you could get through pre-qualifying. If you imagine what it would be like for Jordan, you know, first Grand Prix in Phoenix, Arizona, all the way from Silverstone, from a, a lock-up shed in Silverstone, and if we hadn't got a car through pre-qualifying, we'd be out of there on Friday morning by 9 o'clock and, and you'd have to go home because there wasn't room for anything. Um, I had my 40th birthday there, then, you know, between my wife Jenny and, and Marie Jordan, they'd made a, a lovely cake for us. So it was a nice a nice celebration um, to get one car through. The difficult part was just knowing when to use that second set of tyres. Pirelli kept cleaning up their tyres. Goodyear wouldn't do it. Um, so Pirelli, you know, in reality, they had two sets of tyres per car as well, but they probably had about six runs at doing a lap time. Um, we had two sets of tyres per car, and we had two runs at doing a lap time. So you had to leave that last set of tyres for the last minute because that was when the track was going to be at its best. And also the pressure on don't go out and make a mistake because the track was still dirty. It'd be very easy to go out and make a mistake, and that one one or two laps that you had on those tires would would have been wasted. So, yeah, it was it was pressure. But as I say, it was uh, it was one of those pressures that you know they're untold. I mean, it just it it just happened so fast that that session. I mean, it was one hour bish bash bosh done, and you looked at it and thought, Ooh, we got through there okay. And as I say, Andrea was a great was a great asset uh, during that period in time um, but you know it helped us with understanding the car we were out there and running you know and got an extra hour into some of the other teams so when we did have our act together and we got into the next session we were used it pretty quick I mean you know we qualified well on a Friday on a lot of occasions due to that one hour extra Saturday then they might catch you a little bit more but you know we, we did do a pretty decent job on the Friday for what we were now, Ed, 
no one has probably spoken to Gary more about the way Jordan set itself up in 1991 than you. Maybe Eddie Jordan, but even then I'm not convinced. And I, I think Gary offers a different take there on the fact that if you were quick, having that extra hour of track time, particularly as a new team, could actually be quite useful for the rest of the weekend because in some ways it was a head start on the rest of the guys you'd then be battling with for the rest of the weekend. Yeah, it was extra track time and usually it worked for Jordan with the exception of, uh, of Phoenix. And I think that kind of reflects the kind of team that, that Jordan was because we've got so many different teams came and went and fell apart. And Jordan, I mean, Gary himself will admit he didn't expect the team to come together when he was first asked to do it by Eddie Jordan. But through some uh, some just good, sensible work technically, I mean, when Gary first went to their, their, uh, their lock-up, basically, where they had the the... the team running from there was nothing in it so literally had to start that from from scratch but with a little bit of engineering ingenuity and some good fundamentals and then eddie jordan wheeling and dealing in the background to get money and it shows that at this time you could still pull together a grand prix team and do a good job and they made the most of the opportunities they've got i guess that mindset's probably part part of it isn't it don't look at qualify pre-qualifying as a as a problem look at it as as an opportunity and it was a strong period as well because uh scuderia italia the delaras were having to pre-qualify uh, that year as well. And in fact, uh, we mentioned Johansson's podium, but JJ Lesso got a podium that year. Uh, the last driver to pre-qualify then get a podium at, uh, at Imola. So, you know, another very, very credible team. So if you did the job properly, you had half a chance of uh, of making something of yourself and actually getting on to the, the, the Formula 1 merry-go-round and, and making making a good business out of it, as, of course, Eddie Jordan did. So we've got the JJ Leto podium in there. For those of you using the bingo card that we put out on social media, you might have a full set by now. And if you don't have a full set, you're about to, because in 1992, there were 16 two-car teams entered. So that meant we still had pre-qualifying. But we only had that many cars because of the briefly previously mentioned, but now they get their own section, the shambolic Andrea Moda team, which had required the remains of Coloni that had failed to pre-qualify through 1990, despite the efforts of Gasho, as we previously mentioned. This was a team engulfed in shambles and controversy from the start. Uh, it tried to avoid the mandatory $100,000 entry deposit on the basis that it was a continuation of Coloni rather than a new team. F1 saw through that. The cars turned up in Kyle Army and ran in the familiarisation session because it was a, a new track for 1992, but then they weren't allowed to run again until they produced their own car. So that appeared in Brazil with uh, what had once been a BMW design project carried out by Nick Worth's Simtech operation, the Moda S921. By this point, Roberto Moreno and Perry McCarthy were the unfortunate drivers when Alex Caffey and Enrico Battaglia had been in the cars briefly in South Africa. So the most memorable thing on track that this team ever managed had to be Moreno somehow not only getting through pre-qualifying, but getting onto the grid in Monaco, which is an achievement that I know Ed is in absolute awe of and probably thinks about on a daily basis. McCarthy managed 11 laps in total throughout the season. And I think if you ever Google pictures of him, you normally find him stood next to the car, sometimes even at the end of the pit lane and once he was let out or once he left the pit lane 30 seconds before the end of the session which begs the question what was the point later in the year the bailiffs turned up in the spa paddock and team owner andrea sassetti spent a night in jail 
F1 had had enough of the whole saga by this point, and despite the team's attempts to run again at Monza, it wasn't allowed to. So by this point, we were down to 30 cars, which meant that although only 26 would get on the grid, there was no need for pre-qualifying to decide who would go through to the rest of the weekend. Ed, Andrea Moda, an incredibly famous team for all the wrong reasons, and really, this was, this was I think, the final straw for F1 in that it knew it was moving into a direction where it had to distance itself from these sort of operations, didn't it? Yeah, ever-growing professionalism. It was a big corporate entity by by this stage. And fun as it is to F1, have... F1, not Andrea Moda. Uh, yes, yeah, very much uh, F1. And fun as it is to have Roberto Moreno turning in probably the greatest qualifying performance in F1 history to get, to get, onto, the, to get <laughs> onto the grid. It's just, it's not a great look for Formula One. And also, you know, it's not good for just the general Formula One ecosystem because remember these companies, these teams will will use independent companies to do work for them and sometimes things aren't paid. You know, it's bad for drivers, it's bad for staff, everyone. So there does need to be a line drawn somewhere hilarious as uh, something like Andrea Moda is and there's also the safety issue because there were problems with, uh, with the chassis particularly McCarthy was uh, struggling with the steering column flexing and that kind of thing so yeah safety concerns as well which obviously these days the, the, the crash tests and safety standards that are applied would would tackle that but yeah there's there's a lot of downsides for what's a very small upside of general hilarity. Yeah, a big part of me wants to say, no, let it happen all the time. We need more cars 20 seconds off the pace and having wheels falling off and stuff. But a team being simply rubbish and slow, but being plucky is lovable. A team being dangerous and its owners being legally dubious. Yeah, there's there's no need for that. Yeah, so Andrea Moda, probably the last of these disastrous teams. As subsequently from this point, F1's regulations evolved to put a higher bar on entering F1 in the first place. The last time we had more than 26 cars entered was 1994, where the Pacific team was quite often the team that missed out, spending most of the season failing to make it onto the grid. And since then, we've you know had very rare cases of, of teams that weren't really ready for F1 trying to get in. And those teams are usually kept out by the 107% rule, which was brought in for 1996 as another way to scare off some of the chances we mentioned 94 there. In this era, we had uh, across between 94 and by the middle of 96, we welcomed and lost Simtech, Pacific and 40, uh, the last real band of, of rubbish F1 teams that gave it a go. The 107% rule, of course, meant that the terrible Lola project of 1997, which I promise you will get its own episode in the future, didn't get onto the grid and the only uh, attempt they made in Australia of that year. Those projects are all fascinating in their own way, so we will come back to them in a, in a future episode. But Matt, looking at F1 today, not only has the bar been raised on track, but there's a, there's a very thorough evaluation process for new teams before they're even considered for an entry. They have to prove their financial and technical viability. And, and quite often we hear of, of te- teams try and leak information that they're trying to get onto the grid, and then you follow it up with, say, the FIA or F1 themselves, and you very quickly get told, no, we're not interested in them at all. So the chances are still out there, but all they can do is try and plant a story on the internet that they're trying to to get an entry. Have we lost something because these teams don't make it to F1 anymore? Or as you said before, is it is it okay if they're plucky and competent, but we can't let in teams that are perhaps a risk to F1 as a business, but also safe, from a safety perspective on track? I think that's that's the key thing. 
the plucky teams now would be a team that was doing well in Formula 2 or Formula 3 and thought, OK, I'll give F1 a go, like like a Jordan, like even a Colony further back as well. But all those teams doing well in the Junior Series right now are too sensible. They look at F1 and what it takes and how big they have to grow and the money involved, and they're not going to take that risk. So it only is the, the ludicrous chances trying to make it in. And I don't think their absence really, really hurts. I think the last two times we had like a clutch of small backmarker teams. You mentioned Simtech, Pacific and Forty, and then there was the twenty ten gang of Lotus Caterham, HRT, Virgin Marussia, Manor, which was just three teams despite having a lot of names between them over the course of their history. <laughs> they were in a not enough cylinders either. True. They they were all both those groups, the ninety ninety four, ninety five group and the twenty ten group, were so far off the back of the grid they were in a battle of their own. Whereas at least with the pre-qualifying era, a lot of those teams could get into the race and be competitive and get on the podium. So it's not just the field spread. It was like 12 seconds covering from pole to the back of pre-qualifying in 1989 a lot of the time. It's this big gulf where it's like one group that's quite close, then a no man's land. Yeah, I think it's key what you said there is there there are lots of competent teams in the in the junior ranks and in Formula 2 in particular at the moment. But, you know, the the leap you need to become a real F1 team now, Ed, is is just way beyond those teams that take a handful of people perhaps to races and run cars out of an awning usually around the back of the F1 paddock. The best example for me is ART, you know, a super team in the junior ranks uh, in a lot of championships that I covered uh, and set up by Fred Vasseur, who now runs the Alfa Romeo F1 team. And Fred was constantly being asked, you know, when is ART going to go into F1? And if, if F1 makes it affordable, are you going to go there? And Fred was way too sensible. He knew that it would kill the team. And he's ended up as a, a leading F1 team boss because he's gone in and been hired. He was never going to take his own team there because, as you know very well, Ed, from what you see, you love a backmarker F1 operation, but F1 today is just beyond anyone being able to really create a startup and just turn up and, like Jordan did, sort of work your way through it in that first season. Yeah, well, even for a good racing team that's operating in in junior single seaters in in F two, you can't scale up a team into Formula One. You have to. You, you might have a F two team, and you might think I'm going to start an F one team, but effectively you're starting a completely different team from scratch. It just doesn't doesn't work like that. So I think the current situation is is correct, and that you don't want any old chancer to throw a five year old second hand engine in a wheelbarrow and put a few wings on it and say that's a Formula One car. Uh, but it's a shame that the aspirational element isn't there. You don't want the existing teams to be diluted too much by splitting all the all, all the money that's available to them too much. But Formula One will benefit from it being possible for new teams to come in. The reason new teams can't come in isn't because really the door's slammed in their face. It's because it is so difficult. The amount of money you would need to start a Formula One team from scratch to have any chance of doing it is enormous and the only way that we've seen it work in recent times is with the Haas team which is you know it's two-thirds of a Formula One team they partner with Dallara they get a lot of stuff from from Ferrari so they've done it in a in a certain way and you know we, we don't have to look at it as Formula One's locking people out we need to look at it as well Formula One needs to be a little bit more aware of how to get the costs increasingly under control so that it is possible for new people to come in because teams teams tend not to go out of business thankfully so much uh, anymore but it can happen they can be closed down and formula one is nothing really beyond those 10 teams that can make and run grand prix cars without that they're nothing so that's the lifeblood and that was the probably the positive thing that we saw about the 2010 influx that we did see some manufacturers going out and that at least kept grid numbers up and in fact allowed the grid to to grow a little bit 
in, in that period, although it was only a, a short-term fix. Okay, well, Matt lost us a couple of cylinders when he mentioned those 2010 teams. Now we're talking about Haas coming in. Uh, so we've lost another two cylinders. We're limping round on six cylinders here. So I think it's time to bring this incredible look back at a bonkers era of F1 to an end. And I think, you know, we say bonkers. I think in some ways it was it was charming as well. So we hope you've enjoyed a look back at the other end of the Formula One pit lane at the start of what we consider the V10 era. I don't think there are many V10 engines in pre-qualifying, to be fair. But if there's a story or a rubbish team that didn't get a mention there, make sure you get your questions in for our series finale. Use the hashtag BringBackV10s and make sure you tag at WeAreTheRace. We're, we're picking them up as they come in and we'll do another big push to make sure we get as many as possible. And uh, But we've got one more episode until then and it's going to be taking us back to the end of 1994 when it was Michael Schumacher versus Damon Hill for the World Championship, the final few races of that season, which of course culminates in a controversial finish on the streets of Adelaide. <laughs>